sharing. First, though, as you know, we talked about this earlier in the week, showers, washrooms, a warming tent installed for people living in Strathcona Park. This as more work is being done to find permanent housing. So what is the situation like in the park and what are the plans for the immediate future? Pete Fry joins me on the line, Vancouver City Councillor. Thanks so much for being with us. Hi, Jill. Hi. So what do you know about what's happening and the work that's being done to find people who are living in that park permanent housing? Well, so we heard uh, from Minister Eby today uh, that that, that um, province BC Housing is expecting to have folks in the park uh, currently housed by uh, April, uh, actually end of April. So what that uh, represents, it's, it's, it's a somewhat disappointing timeline as far as folks who are expecting a more rapid uh, response, including myself, and obviously for people who are, you know, struggling living in a, in a, in a park in the, in the wet and the cold and during a pandemic. That said, uh, it does signal a very clear in, intention and alignment now with, with Parks Board and City Council to uh, see folks who are currently camping in Strathcona Park uh, uh, put into uh, given proper housing and um, and to see us really start an incremental decampment process that will see the, the park return to its intended use. Uh, we are going to talk to David Eby a bit later on in this program. It, the timeline to me also seemed a bit, uh, and I get that there are a lot of moving parts and a lot of groups that have to come together to get this done, but it does seem unfortunate that when people are going to be moved into permanent housing is going to be right when the weather is changing again and when we've come through uh, the wet and the coldest months of the year. Yeah, for sure. And it is complicated. There's lots of moving parts. I mean, uh, Minister Eby is the, the right person for this job. He 100% gets the, the context and has a pretty profound understanding of of that work in that space from his pre-elected life as well. So I'm, I'm confident that, that the intention and the direction is there. You know, the, the challenge is, quite honestly, we just don't have spaces for folks to go to uh, right away. And with the pandemic, it's really compromised our ability to even on, on board things like, you know, traditional sort of cold weather shelters because we have to affect physical distancing for folks who are, are in these shelters or in housing facilities because of the pandemic protocols. So it is extra complicated. Um, I wish it could be a lot faster. But again, just seeing this alignment now and this attention is, is, a, is a big part of the step forward. And I think we just need to keep that momentum going. And, and if we can deliver more sooner, great, because this is an incremental housing program that's, that's going on. So we're you know, actively already uh, housing folks. Um, we can't do them all at once, so that's the challenge, right? Uh, how are things going there right now? I know you live in the area. How is the situation there today or uh, as we speak? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't go into the park uh, like I used to. Um, I tend to sort of observe from the periphery. Uh, it does, uh, it's the conditions, you know, the few times I have been in the park recently, um, it's been pretty muddy and dirty and, and, and there's a lot of, uh, you know, deertress and, and, and garbage strewn around and abandoned tents and stuff. And we're seeing a lot of that kind of being more dispersed and cleaned up. Uh, we see some fencing that's going in, some kind of temporary fencing that's beginning to start to sort of delineate where the encampment will be sort of uh, triaged as we add these services closer to the services that we've added 
and 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 where we're going to start to see parts of the park reclaimed and remediated. So the intention is to 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 start to clear uh, on one side of the park so that we can start to return it to park and and gradually reduce the footprint of the encampment as we're moving folks into into proper housing. And how confident are you that this is going to be a permanent solution? When we look back at the history of Oppenheimer Park, there was a camp, the camp was dismantled, the park was remediated, there was another camp, uh, the park still hasn't been returned to the community. We know some of the people from Oppenheimer are people who are now living in Strathcona. Uh, not everybody is going to agree to housing that is offered to them. How do you make sure this is a permanent solution or ensure that another camp doesn't come back? Well, so the uh, the park board amended their parks control bylaw in in October um, to reflect the constitutional so the charter rights and freedom guaranteed right for Canadians to seek shelter in parks if they have nowhere else to go overnight. Uh, parks board have amended the park control bylaw to actually really distinguish that yes, that charter right guarantees that, but it doesn't mean that you can set up a permanent encampment. Uh, with that, they've empowered the new general manager, uh, Donnie Rosa, general manager of Parks and Recreation, to um, more rigorously pursue uh, injunctions if necessary, but, but policies and strategies to, to keep this from happening in other parks or, or again. Obviously, this is an exceptionally challenging time with COVID-19, and it really has had a profound impact on our ability to house people. And, and, and that can't be understated. And, and indeed, as, as the pandemic drags on, we may see you know, more and more people falling into housing precarity. Uh, the, 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 the fact of the matter is, is that we've seen you know, decades of chronic underinvestment in, in housing and, uh, and, and concurrently uh, you know, a lot of gentrification, a lot of speculation in housing that have created this, this situation. Um, I am really actually quite confident, especially, you know, Again, reflecting on Minister Eby's background and, and his mandate as Minister of Housing and, and this government, uh, this provincial government, really taking a more assertive role to ensuring the British Columbians. Because, again, this is, this is not just a Vancouver problem. We, we, we feel it most directly because we tend to accommodate a lot of the regions unhoused. Uh, but this is really a, a problem for British Columbians, and housing precarity across our province is pretty significant. So I, I do have confidence that this government is... Uh, really investing more in housing, and I know we have a bunch of projects that are coming online in in the in you know in 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 months and this year that uh, will make a big difference. Uh, right, and you talk about the housing and the, the housing that's coming online, uh, but when you talk as well about the the initiative of the park board or the rules that they will enforce an injunction, it was my understanding that the injunction to remove people would only be enforced if there was that guarantee of housing. That's correct. Yeah. And I would say they've empowered the GM to do that. I, I, I want to be clear that that's not necessarily the intention or direction at this point. And this is where we're, but we are aligned that that the we are we're going to get the folks housed, and then we're going to, as we incrementally get them housed and reclaim the park, we'll have tools to present future. Um, really, what when we talk about a lot of these encampments, there's sort of a difference between sort of an organic encampment and an, and an organized sort of protest encampment. And what we have uh, seen typically are they're, they're, these encampments start off as, as protest encampments and then draw folks in who are experiencing homelessness and through the provision of various services and community and, and other things. And, and what this 
this direction that we're doing now really sort of supplants the leadership of the sort of the protest encampment over over the people who are unhoused. Uh, so as you know, the, the the leadership of the encampment in the past has prevented our outreach workers, police, fire rescue, even even um, sanitation services from accessing the park uh, unless it was under their terms. Now, through this alignment of intention with the with, with the province, the city, and the, and the park board, we're now establishing sort of a little bit more control over how um, how we're providing services to folks in the park, and we're also providing sort of exit strategies for folks to get out of the park and into housing. And we're really asserting a little bit more control and authority in the park, and um, in order to bring those services and, and housing to people. All right, so we'll have to leave it there, Councillor Fry. Thanks so much for your time. All right, my pleasure. Well, continuing the conversation about people who are currently living in Strathcona Park in Vancouver, we were chatting with Pete Fry, Vancouver City Councillor, earlier on in the program. Uh, Let's bring in now BC's Minister responsible for housing, David Eby, is on the line. Thank you so much for making time for us. Thanks for having me. Uh, Pete Fry talked about the fact that uh, you had told him the end of April is the target date, uh, the deadline, or the date where it's expected people that are currently living in the park will have permanent housing. How was that date agreed to? Well, the key is uh, specifically since being appointed minister that um, uh, I asked BC Housing to prepare a plan. Uh, for getting people inside with specific uh, locations and rooms and as realistic as possible so that we could have a timeline for resolution. I mean, I think most people would agree that this has gone on long enough uh, with people outside in the rain and the cold and the uh, conditions that they're facing and the impact on neighborhoods as well. Um, So there's a great deal of urgency on the part of uh, the provincial government and uh, happily now, uh, there is a shared urgency at the park board. Uh, they announced it in uh, December, uh, their interest in uh, moving ahead with an injunction if housing is made available. Uh, and uh, at the city level, uh, we certainly have support from the mayor's office and uh, from councillors. So uh, everybody is lined up. Uh, BC Housing um, is uh, is advising me that they believe that by the end of April, we should have enough spaces to get everybody inside and dignified spaces uh, some of them will be transition spaces. Uh, you know, we're, we've got hundreds of units of supportive housing coming online over the next two years, uh, specifically in Vancouver. And so some people will be in transition spaces as we open those new spots up. However, um, they will be uh, more than just a mat on the floor and uh, because we want to recognize people's dignity and, and get them into a place where they're safer. Uh, so, But which spaces will these be? Because I get what you're saying. These new spaces will be up in the next couple of years, but th- that's not what we would be talking about that will be available before the end of April. So, so if it's space that currently exists, why can't it be done faster? So the, there are a couple um, key constraining uh, points. One is that there are... Uh, uh, units that are currently under construction or under renovation that are being accelerated in order to bring people in. Uh, There will be uh, rent supplements that will be provided to people to get them into existing private uh, uh, rental housing stock or uh, nonprofit operated rental housing stock um, as rooms come available. Uh, In addition, uh, there will be um, uh, what would be described as shelters, uh, but more than a mat on the floor. So there are cubicles with a bed and a a drawer for storage of safe storage of belongings and a desk and a light uh, to work at, and most importantly, uh, physical separation so that people uh, are at minimal risk of transmission of COVID. Um, and so in order to uh, open those sites and prepare all those sites, we do need that time. 
And there's also staffing requirements. So following the Oppenheimer Park decampment, uh, where everybody pulled together and really stretched themselves to open up spaces and uh, the nonprofit operators to hire people and bring them on in a hurry to get people out of that encampment. Um, everyone gave a collective sigh of relief when it was done. Uh, and then uh, it was shortly after that, the second encampment um, started uh, and continued to grow. And so we're talking about about 200 people. So those same nonprofit organizations, as well as BC Housing, are now uh, stretching themselves again. So that that is the delay. It's not something like a switch where we turn it off and on. Uh, the rooms have to be prepared. They have to be safe. The staff have to be trained because we don't want to create problems uh, in the neighborhoods where these uh, sites are located. And so 200 people, is that what you believe at this point, how many people are living in Strathcona Park? Yeah, we, we, I understand on advice from BC Housing that there's somewhere in the neighborhood of 200 people and that we need to prepare for more than 200 people in the event that uh, people start showing up in anticipation of the April um, uh, deadline uh, and hoping to get into housing. Um, so we're going to overshoot that mark in our preparations, and uh, and our expectation is that by the end of April there'll be enough spaces to get people indoors, but we're going to need, uh, very importantly, uh, active cooperation from the city and from the park board to get that done. Uh, you mentioned the neighbourhoods where people will be going. Are they going to be dispersed uh, around the city, or where will people be housed? Well, there are a couple of sites that are public already. There's a, a, a motel that's owned by the City of Vancouver and the, the Jericho uh, Hostel um, are two of the sites. Um, and so uh, other sites um, are currently uh, being renovated or prepared by BC Housing. Uh, and then still other sites are under active negotiation with BC Housing. So um, all of that work is happening right now in order to work our way towards um, uh, what I hope to be uh, the concluding date of this particular encampment at the end of April. How confident are you that uh, workers and people who are involved at all of the different levels uh, dealing with the camp at Strathcona have been able to get in there and have been able to figure out exactly who is homeless, who needs uh, mental health supports, who needs other health supports, and who's part of a very different group, but which often starts out as protest camps? Well, that's a really important question, and BC Housing has been on the site um, regularly uh, interacting with folks. I don't think we have a good sense of all of the people uh, uh, who are using the encampment. Uh, I'm also very concerned about uh, the uh, profound likelihood and the reality uh, that predators are attracted to sites like this where there are vulnerable people, and uh, which includes gangs and people inclined to violence. And so um, ensuring the safety of the people on the site is a priority. Um, however, it is a challenge. Um, and, uh, you know, there are a lot of people who understandably are very privacy-minded. Uh, the access to the site uh, for groups, uh, as I understand it, including the police, has been limited. Um, and it's not an easy situation for anyone. So with the changes that were recently made, the warming tent and the showers and the bathrooms, the potable water to keep people as healthy as possible as uh, we move towards April. Um, uh, with that also came fencing around the uh, exterior of the site to try to begin to provide, provide some definition about who's on the site, uh, get to know them a little better and ensure that the housing options that we can offer are suitable. Um, this is all part of the work of moving forward towards the April plan.
And Minister, we tend to focus a lot on Strathcona Park because of the size of the camp, because of certain, because of the neighborhood, because of people that that have raised awareness about this, and many of the things that you just said. But it's certainly not an issue that is specific to Strathcona. I walked to work today, and on one stretch of Granville Street in downtown Vancouver, there was someone sleeping in every doorway of every store on that that stretch of road. How do you deal with the fact that homelessness is, it appears to be rampant in this city and it's not going anywhere anytime soon? So there are a couple uh, pieces that have really contributed to the perfect storm uh, that we're facing right now. One is obviously the fact that uh, we had 16 years of underinvestment under the previous uh, BC Liberal administration and housing. Uh, but that is significantly complicated by the fact that um, the shelters uh, that we had operating are operating at about 50% capacity. So people who would have typically been uh, less visible because they were staying at a shelter are now very visible because they can't get into a shelter because of COVID restrictions. And then a lot of services that were um, aimed at keeping people in their housing, providing them with support for their mental health issue or their disability, or ensuring that they were making their rent payments, these kinds of things, those services because of social contact and social distancing and and guest policies and other restrictions um, have made it really difficult for those services to operate and some of them have stopped operating, which has caused people to become homeless. So um, it's a very difficult situation right now. Uh, I don't pretend to say that we've even seen the worst of it necessarily, but I will tell people that they are going to start seeing a very significant improvement over the next 12 months for a couple of reasons. One is uh, we're deploying with the federal government uh, rapid uh, housing initiative uh, that requires that nonprofits put forward proposals where they can house people within the next 12 months. We will have a significant uh, portion, if not the entirety, of the encampment uh, in Strathcona um, inside by the end of April. Uh, and we will have uh, additional housing units that are opening that were long planned uh, even before COVID as we roll out our um, billion dollars plus in housing investment across the province. So uh, we are at a very low point right here. It might even get worse. I note that in Nanaimo there was an explosion and a fire at a, an encampment in that city. Uh, but we are moving as quickly as possible to ensure we can offer shelter, get people inside, get them safer, and uh, continue to move to put those permanent housing units in place. All right, and I think you just touched on this, uh, but just before I let you go, uh, can you say uh, 100% that that camp in Strathcona will be gone by the end of April? Uh, The advice that I have from BC Housing is that they are very confident that they'll have enough spaces to get people inside, whether or not we get an injunction from the court to facilitate that, whether or not our partners at the park board and the city fulfill their end of the bargain. I'm hopeful at this stage, uh, but but those are uh, outside of my control. What is within my control uh, is the advice I'm receiving from BC Housing and my accountability around that. Uh, And the advice I'm receiving is that we will have those places available for people by the end of April. Well, there was some new information released earlier today. The federal government saying that there will be a temporary delay in receiving vaccine from Pfizer-BioNTech. Also, uh, some more uh, numbers released as far as the federal modeling numbers. It's not clear how many doses we could be short, but Procurement Minister Anita Anon insists it won't mess up Canada's long-term vaccination timeline. We still anticipate being on track to vaccinate all Canadians who wish to be immunized by the end of September. Anon says this 
this is not a stoppage and that drug makers believe they'll still be able to deliver 4 million doses by the end of March as promised. They just can't guarantee it. Meanwhile, the news comes as Dr. Theresa Tam warned today that Canada is on track to hit 10,000 new daily cases of COVID-19 by the end of January. Predicted number of cases could be in the range of 752,400 to 796,630 by January the 24th. The modeling shows that in a week's time, another 2,000 people could die. Sandy Salerno, Global News. Let's bring in Daniel Coombs, UBC mathematician. He's also worked with the province of British Columbia on pandemic modeling here. Daniel, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. Yeah, hi. What is your response when we look at some of those federal numbers? We'll start there before we kind of take a look at what's happening here in BC. So I um, just just as I've been following along the, the, the different provinces, I don't I don't see anything uh, particularly surprising there. Um, you know, uh, Ontario and Quebec, um, maybe some improvement, but not looking particularly great still. Um, I think Alberta is uh, Alberta and Manitoba rather. Um, they, they've both been able to get the uh, epidemic under control, and, and I even heard that Alberta might be reopening a little bit um, in a few days. Um, Saskatchewan also also pretty good. I think I think it's the, it's uh, the, the the large provinces, Ontario and Quebec, that I think are still giving the the, the most concern. And is that also is it the impact of that from new strains of the virus, and and that being able to to go faster and to be uh, slightly more contagious or is it simply well not simply or is it because of the amount of virus that is in the community yeah i don't think okay so so um i'm i'm ready to be to be proven wrong on this but i think at this point the the impact of the new strains in canada is probably not very big um the, the potential for impact i'd say is massive but um we're still in the those early stages um they, they did a thorough retrospective look for the strains in British Columbia um, and, and didn't turn anything up. Um, um, uh, I'm not familiar with exactly what's been going on uh, in Ontario and Quebec, but I, I would imagine that the impact is not huge. I don't think we're in the situation as they are in the UK where the, the arrival of the, you know, the, 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 growth, the outgrowth of the UK strain uh, is, is, is responsible for a, for a large amount of the increases they've seen over the last few months. So that sounds like something then, if that's correct, that it hasn't had a huge impact, especially here in BC. Uh, would that be because of the measures that we're taking and, and making sure that people continue taking those measures so it doesn't become an issue? Um, that's, <laughs> that's what needs to happen. Um, you know, the, there's always an element of chance here. Um, the, there was a lot of outgrowth of the UK strain before it was ever even detected in the UK. Um, as it's come to dominate, and, that, and then we see returning—sorry, uh, in the UK—and then we see returning travelers in Canada, uh, and potentially, you know, potentially their contacts can be infected. Um, I think it's it's absolutely critical at this point that um, a lot of attention is paid to um, those returning travelers. Uh, Long term, I, I I would be surprised if we can remain strain-free, as it were. I think I think the UK strain or, or another uh, more transmissive strain is likely to dominate. In, in British Columbia and in Canada, um, what we're trying to what 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 um, travel restrictions or, or quarantine you know enhanced quarantining of, of travelers would do is is delay um, that that additional growth, which would allow us a longer period without extra restrictions, and I think critically allow us to vaccinate more of um, our most vulnerable people um, over the next weeks and months.
so kind of staying the course and keeping in mind that even with uh, we're seeing this a bit of a delay or a disruption in the Pfizer uh, vaccine chain, uh, that, that whole idea of keeping the numbers low while we get that vaccine rolled out? Yeah, I mean, ultimately, we, we have to keep doing what we're doing. Um, I think keeping um, the, 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 the new strains should be monitored for carefully. Um, there should be enhanced uh, travel-related travel restrictions and quarantining and, and testing associated with travelers, uh, even interprovincial travelers, which uh, I know has been talked about a lot over the last few days. I think that's a very good idea. Um, with, with the goal of, of buying additional time so that as much vaccination can be done as is possible, even, even with the reduced numbers of doses. But, you know, ultimately, we have to keep doing what we're doing um, Comes, come a new strain or not another strain, we, ha- we have to do those things um, uh, until we can get a high enough fraction of the population vaccinated to really make an impact on transmission. Right now, you know, we're just a little over 1% of people in the province have been vaccinated. And, uh, you know, that's, that's really not very many from the point of view of, of, of the virus spreading through the community. Uh, when we look at the big picture of the numbers, though, and I'm looking at the most recent numbers, we'll get new ones uh, in about an hour and a half from now. But yesterday, uh, the province saying it had recorded 500, <clears throat> excuse me, 536 new COVID-19 cases. That means currently active cases in the province of BC right now are at 4,624. Uh, and, and again, 362 people in hospital, 72 are in ICU. But that number of 4,624... When we're talking about a province with a population of 5 million, that makes it seem like we're actually doing quite well. <laughs> yeah, and, and honestly, um, I think since um, since the restrictions were slightly upped back in November, you know, the, the, things have turned around. There was, there was a very slow drop. Um, the numbers were a little bit strange over Christmas, um, over the, the Christmas period um, up until last week. I think some maybe some people you know, deferred getting tested during the holidays and, and, and there, were, there were some oddities there. But we seem to be back onto this kind of very slow, decaying trajectory, uh, fluctuating day to day. Um, I, I think we're doing well. We should remember, though, that not everybody who's infected gets tested. Um, you know, this is, the, the, this is still a bit of an X factor, is that there are, there are certainly more than 5,000 people in the province um, who, who um, you know, in a principle should be should be counted as cases right now. We just don't know that they're out there. Right. And is that because we don't, t- uh, don't test asymptomatic? Uh, yeah, I think you could say that. Uh, we don't have a, a program for random testing. You know, uh, the, only, the, the closest we have to random testing, in, in a sense, is, is the film industry people who, who do get tested whether they're showing symptoms or not. Um, and, um, you know, as far as I'm aware... The, there have been very few cases detected from from that, but of course these are also people who get tested a lot, and so and so they're probably and they're also probably pretty careful people, I would think, for that reason. So, so do you think it would change then? Because that that is an ongoing debate. It's the the amount of testing, and and health officials have been asked, well, why is our testing so much lower than we're seeing in other jurisdictions? But the answer is often given, well, we only test people with symptoms. So if people don't have symptoms, they don't have COVID, and they're not going to get tested. So people without symptoms are almost certainly, um, uh, you know, three times, roughly speaking, you know, three times less infectious than people with symptoms. Um, you have to distinguish a little bit between um, 
people who will who will never show symptoms, who, who you know just <laughs> don't even know they're infected for the whole time, versus pre-symptomatic people who, they're, they're, you know, you occasionally hear about um, you know people who transmitted to others before they got their symptoms, and that's that's actually a little bit of a different story. Um, you know, if we if we had some additional random testing, I'm just well, I, I, to me, it, it makes sense in, in, in places where we know um, transmission commonly occurs. So those would, would be healthcare settings and, and long-term care facilities. Um, and I think there is some movement towards using uh, rapid tests in, in those places, but I'm not sure how advanced that is. No, and uh, yes, we're uh, certainly waiting to, to get an update on that. Uh, so, so speaking uh, from, from your point of view, looking at where we are right now in BC, uh, what kind of a grade would, would you give the province or what would you say you're expecting to see in the next couple of weeks? Um, what I hope to see over the next few weeks um, is, is a um, is a continuing focus on detecting the, the new strains um, as they come in. Um, and I think we'll be hearing a lot more about those efforts over the next few weeks um, um, because I see that as, as the single largest uh, new factor um, affecting our, uh, you know, affecting our experience of the pandemic. But like I said, I'm, I'm, I'm very happy to see the numbers overall have been declining, especially, uh, you know, Fraser Health is, is in a much better place than it was uh, back in November. Um, I am concerned about the numbers of new cases which are now uh, being being found in interior and northern health, and I hope that those can be brought under control and uh, those, you know, non-lower mainland areas of the province can can, uh, return to sort of where they've traditionally been through the pandemic as, as, as relatively minor. All right, Daniel, we'll leave it there. Thank you so much. Always good to have you on the program talking about this. Uh, appreciate your time today. Thank you. Well, there has been an update as to what is happening at the Delta Hospice. And joining me to talk a bit more about that is Jim Sinclair, the chair of the Fraser Health Board of Directors. Thanks so much for being with us. Glad to be here. Uh, I know there was a news conference earlier today where you and Dr. Victoria Lee uh, spoke about this. So what is happening with the Delta Hospice at this point? At this point, uh, the Delta Hospice uh, ceases to be funded by the Fraser Health Authority on February 25th. Uh, We expect at that point it will close. Uh, What will happen is that we're committed to keeping care in that community. So in the interim, uh, we are setting up uh, Delta Hospice beds at the Mountain View uh, Manor. And so people who are seeking hospice care in Delta will still get it in their community. Unfortunately, we have to do that because we have sought on many occasions to ask this organization, the Society, the Delta Hospice Society, to make a transition plan with us so that Fraser Health Authority could come in and and continue to run the uh, hospice, to continue to provide the services and keep all these existing staff working so there'd be a smooth transition. Unfortunately, they're refusing to leave and uh, they are refusing to cooperate with us on this on this issue. Uh, we know that they've uh, laid off staff. They've issued staff layoff notices. Uh, as you just said, they're, they're not cooperating with this. They were furious uh, when it was given, the notice was given last February. Uh, so mm-hmm. what's going to happen, do you think, come February 25th? It doesn't seem like this is a group that's just going to leave quietly. No, this has become a, almost a religious issue for them around the maid services. And, and unfortunately, the, the, uh, the building and the, and the hospice itself is almost secondary now. Um, so what will happen is that uh, the building will uh, will become cease to be a hospice, and uh, it will be empty, and uh, and uh, it will go on like that 
for some time, potentially. Now, what will happen on February 25th is we'll serve notice to the uh, Hospice Society under our service agreement, uh, 30 days notice to vacate the premises. If they were truly representative of the community and the, and the local government and, and almost everybody, including some of the major donors to that place, they would leave and we would restart the hospice almost immediately. Uh, but I mean, we can look back at the history of uh, the current board and the leader of the board, and uh, it's almost the opposite of being representative of the community. When you look at what uh, a, a part of the community this has been uh, with donors, with volunteers who are heartbroken over what's been happening there. Uh, so what happens then to the people who are currently at the hospice? Well, we've stopped sending uh, uh, people to the hospice now, of course, uh, because uh, we can't guarantee that um, they're t- that, that they'll be able to stay as long as they need to. So, if there are there's six patients there now, uh, six people there now, and if uh, if they're still there on February 25th, they'll be transferred uh, uh, next door to the Mountain uh, View uh, Manor, which is part of Delta Hospital, correct? Uh, yeah, near it. Yes. Right. Um, which it doesn't seem ideal either. If you're at that stage that you're at a hospice, uh, there's there's a very important reason why you've gone there and moving uh, to a new location isn't really ideal. No, it's absolutely not ideal. It's it's certainly not our first choice. Uh, I think even having the uh, having the hospice inside a long-term care facility is not our choice at all. Um, our choice would have been to continue to use that facility that was built specifically with community money for that reason. And I guess that's why it's so uh, it's worrisome and and a lot of people are upset about it, and I don't blame them. It's a difficult situation. And, uh, but at the end of the day, we are really committed at the Fraser Health Authority to making sure that that hospice returns to being a hospice. I don't know if you've ever been there, but it's a beautiful building. It's a beautiful setting, and it belongs to be run as a hospice for the community as it was built. And you talked a bit about the donors and the fact uh, that this is a, a big part of the community. How do you think it was able to get to this point? Uh, with with MADE being the, the main sticking point, it is run by a group now uh, for religious reasons. They are opposed to medically assisted dying and have done their best and have succeeded in, in, in stacking that board and keeping it and, and trying to stop that. Well, they did a number of things. It was a strategic, strategic plan because it was no longer about the community. They, they uh, had a membership drive across the country amongst the religious right. So right now, two-thirds of the members of that society have no interest at all in that community, don't live there, and will never use the hospice. But that's uh, how political they've made the whole thing and how far they've gone from when they started. Uh, so it's very difficult uh, in, in that sense to, to get that, and that's how we got to this point. Um, and so if there was a meeting held today... That 2,000 or 2,500 people that are members of the society from Delta can be outvoted by all the other people. Even if every single person in Delta wanted to keep the hospice open and, uh, and uh, keep it going, uh, they could lose that vote because uh, it could be stacked by the people from around the country in North America. In fact, there's people from Texas and Alabama on the list. Uh, have you had any response from the, uh, the, the people running the hospice now as far as what their plans are come February 25th? Uh, no, we don't know what their plans are. Uh, we, we did have a number of discussions with them about a transition plan, and they rejected uh, any attempt to do that. Um, so we don't, we're not sure what they're going to do. We're going to serve notice under the contract, black and white there, that says uh, if you're no longer offering a public uh, health care service uh, funded, uh, then, um, then uh, we are entitled to serve 30 days notice. So if the community had a say, uh, in in this situation, and local government and donors, I suspect that the vast majority would say, well, please pack up your things and move on. This battle is over. 
You'll have to fight the maid battle somewhere else and give us back our hospice. And I'm hoping that's what's going to happen. Uh, however, I want to say again, we're very committed. And I, the other alternative is they'll take the money they've raised to run the hospice and they'll use it for lawyers. And they'll try to overturn a pretty clear uh, contract. And we could get tied up in the courts for a while, which would really be a shame. But uh, we will go down that route if we have to. Because if that happens, then it sounds like during that court battle, the hospice would be empty. Well, these are legal issues, uh, Jill, as you can imagine, and I'm no lawyer. But, I mean, there may be some, of course, that we could say that in the meantime, they should exit it and then let the courts decide what should happen. But it should go back to being a hospice. So I don't know what the outcome is. But obviously, once you get into the courts, it can drag on for a long time, unfortunately. And that would be really unfortunate. And can you remind uh, me and the listeners uh, again, because one of the, the points in this, too, that often gets muddled is who actually owns the building and the property that the building is on? Well, the property is owned by the Fraser Health Authority, which, I, as my understanding was, you have to go back a number of years to when they built the hospital. It was donated by the city and the GBRD, so it really belonged to the public. Uh, and it was uh, really given to the health authority to uh, to build the, the hospital and ultimately the hospice. Now, the building is a, a lease arrangement. I mean, it was money was raised, and they have it, uh, and they had a 30-year lease to uh, to uh, take care of it during the time that they were there. But um, they've obviously, we've uh, canceled that lease, uh, as we're allowed to do under the circumstances. So the building really belongs, when it, ultimately, when you think about it, the building belongs to the people of Delta. And which, and again, uh, circling back to people who, uh, I mean, I know volunteers that have been part of that hospice uh, for more than a decade and again, are absolutely heartbroken by what they're seeing yeah. happen. And, and But also understanding that given the circumstances, uh, the Fraser Health Authority and the province uh, really don't, I mean, they're pleased that they're taking this stand, but it's still right. uh, pr- quite sad that it, that it needed to come to this in the first place. Well, I think so. And I think as a health authority, we have to look hard at some of these contracts we have with outside agencies and outside societies. And we normally don't have this problem. You know, we don't really have these kind of big battles with people. But when they happen, uh, then, uh, you know, you need to have very airtight contracts to make sure that you can guarantee the continuation of service. I just feel badly that we couldn't guarantee the continuation of service. Um, the fact that we are setting up the beds in another situation uh, is good and that we're keeping that commitment. But obviously, the best case would have been for this society to move on and for us to continue to operate the hospice. For people who are opposed to MAID then, do you think there is a place for, if somebody wanted to run an organization, whether it's a hospice or, or something else, where they personally, a relig- for religious reasons, oppose MAID, uh, is there a place for that? Maybe just not a place well, that has public money? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a place for it. And there may be places where you can't do hospice services, uh, do MAID services. But I don't think there's a place for publicly funded, this is my personal feeling, there's not a place for publicly funded places where uh, organizations can decide to deny people their basic rights that are guaranteed by law. I think that's a very tough spot to be in, and certainly from the board of directors' point of view at Fraser Health, we've always felt that if we were funding that, then people had a right to those services. Now, let's be clear. If you're a worker in those uh, facilities, you're not required to be part of that service at all if you have a belief against it. Uh, and uh, so there's no obligation for medical staff to be part of it that don't want to be. Uh, it's really up to the individual choice. And uh, and I think that's the real issue here. And we've always felt that you shouldn't have to be lifted out of your hospice and taken to some other place to actually exercise that right. Because uh, ultimately, in my experience with hospices, I have personal experiences with them, 
um, they're, they're the person's last home. Mm-hmm. That, that's, where, that's where they actually end their lives. And it's a very important time in their lives. And to pick them up and say, oh, yeah, you're going to have a service. But, oh, yeah, you have to be carted off to some other place to have it done. It really just isn't, isn't the way it should be done. Well, we'll leave it there and see what happens at the end of next month. Jim Sinclair, thanks so much for your time today. Yeah, thank you very much. All right, coming up on the program, uh, we are going to talk a little bit more about uh, cold water swimming. And it seems like more people are maybe looking at it, maybe not quite ready to, pardon the pun, take the plunge. But uh, that is, well... It could be on the horizon. Perhaps it is gaining momentum, even though with COVID, like everything else, there are rules and regulations and a lot of events have been cancelled. We're going to talk a bit more about that coming up on the program. And the reason I wanted to talk about this was partly because I think I have seen more people taking the plunge into the cold waters off, be it English Bay or Spanish Banks or any of the other rather chilly waters of off Metro Vancouver. So let's check in with Craig Stewart, president of the Vancouver Open Water Swimming Association. Craig, thank you so much for being with us. My pleasure. Uh, I I first reached out to you because I realized there was a group. I've seen people out swimming and I know, uh, as mentioned, because of the pandemic, things have changed. But uh, maybe talk a little bit. What is it you think that, that drew you and draws people to this idea of cold water swimming? Well, I mean, it's a combination of things. First, you have to kind of be okay with open water swimming, which is a step. You know, it's not um, a pool where the water is about 22 degrees and you can see the bottom. Open water swimming is you're in a lake, you're in the ocean, you don't know what's below you. It can be pretty cold even in the summer. Um, so if a pool is 22 degrees, typically the ocean can be like 14, 15 to 17 in the summer and cold, much colder in the winter. Right now, the ocean around here is about 7.5 degrees on a nice day so why i would be compelled to do it is because the pools are a bit more restrictive right now because of the pandemic but also i don't like the chlorine (laughs) and being in nature is also you know it just feels great to be outside you know would you rather walk inside a building or go for a walk outside typically you want to go outside so if you can handle the temperature and a bit of the wildness of open water feels great. <laughs> now, there's a, a gentleman that I see quite often uh, by the dog beach where I go who just uh, plunges in. He's out jogging and he goes in the water, he takes a dip and then keeps on jogging. He doesn't wear a wetsuit, but uh, from what I understand, a lot of people do. There's no shame in that. So what are, what are some of the, the safeties and what, well, what do you do when you swim in the water? Safety first, I wear a wetsuit. Um, but those people who can do that, I know a number of them who swim in the water in the winter without a wetsuit, they have acclimatized over a long period of time. So the coldest water I've swum in is 12.5, and it took me about 15 minutes just to get comfortable with the water. And and I think one of the times I, I tried to do that before, it was the psychological feeling of, like, I don't know how I'm going to get warm again. So a key safety thing that cold water swimmers will tell you is have warm stuff to get like a nice thermos of hot tea, something like that, and then you don't feel quite as scared when you are cold. Cause it's, a, it's, a, it's a limited duration. It's a stress on the body. But your body has a wonderful of reacting, of countering that stress. So some people can do what that guy does. Um, but it takes them a long time. It's not like, you know, you can't just run a marathon with no training. You right. have to build up to it. 
So coldest you've been in is 12.5 degrees uh, with a wetsuit. Can you describe what does it feel like when you submerge yourself into water that temperature? It feels like it reminded me of going into a hot tub. And you know that moment you get into a hot tub and you go, I don't know if I can take this. I don't know if I have to pull my feet out or not. You know, you have that moment of deciding, can I handle this? And then you get through it and then you're kind of okay. That's what I felt like. I put my arms in and my heart started doing different things. I'm like, I don't think I can leave my arms in anymore. And then I, I, you know, there was friends sort of with me. There's a swimming group and they're much more climatized to the water. And then I put them in again and I felt a little bit better. And so it just feels a little better, a step at a time, um, without, like, the worst thing you can do is jump in. You get cold water shock. Your heart, you know, is like, what is going on? So just a little bit of time, and you, it's amazing what your body does in reaction. And because your body, what, it protects your heart and your adrenaline starts going. What else happens? Well, you don't want the adrenaline to go too far, because then you sort of have this fight-or-flight response, and you start sort of making very, very quick sort of, you know, immediate reaction, like decisions that aren't necessarily the best ones, you know. Um, so you want to go in slowly, but what your blood apparently does is go to your torso to keep your, um, your organs protected. And it will be sort of less on the surface of your skin. The more you get used to it, the more you do it, the blood doesn't sort of freak out as much. Because you don't want to actually lose blood from the extremities, because that is super dangerous. There's a, a, a condition where if your fingers turn white, that's like time to go to the water. It's like a very, you know, you don't want that to happen. Hmm. So little by little, your blood goes, oh, I can stay near the surface and I'm not, you know, it's not the worst thing in the world. Uh, and what are the health benefits? What draws people to do this? Well, I mean, I, you know, again, it's what I said at the top, it's, it's nature. It just feels to be good. It feels good to be out in the water. Like it feels good to be in a forest. It feels good to be in nature. You know, we're outside of the human world, number one. Um, and, you know, there's days when it's rainy and it's not so great, but then there's days when it's like today and it's gorgeous and sunny and you want to be outside. Um, and then it's that little bit of endorphin you get after exercising in, in a wild situation where you're not even sort of thinking about laps or um, distance or time. You're just out and you're exercising and then you feel pretty good. And then you come out and your body has this reaction after cold water swimming of uh, giving you endorphins for having done this thing that was a bit stressful. Because all endurance sports is, and something like this, is being uncomfortable and being un- uncomfortable for a little while and being okay with that. And then you get this sort of this little bit of a, a kick. Like, I've done this thing. It's psychological, but also physical. Because when you, when people do this, do, is it the act of swimming itself? And I've seen people out uh, with the wetsuits and, and, and uh, the kind of swimming around uh, Kitsilano, around uh, off Kitts Beach. Is it the act of mm-hmm. swimming itself that's the exercise? Or is it also for people that getting into the water and, and the body's reaction? And, and like you said, kind of that psychological, I submerged in the water and then just got out. Yeah, I mean, I, I polar bear swim. And I would still take sort of a workout in a pool more than, you know, 15 minutes in cold water. But there is, um, it's a different experience altogether. And, you know, and it's also, you know, it should be social. You shouldn't swim alone. You should be with other people. And so knowing that you're doing something, you know, a little bit hardy, you know, a little bit that not everybody wants to do is even interested in. Um, makes you feel a bit of a badass. You feel a little bit cool. <laughs> um, I understand Vancouver as well has some pretty hardcore cold water swimmers that have taken uh, some accolades from around the world. We have Jesse Harowitz, who is one of three Canadians to do the triple crown of open water swimming, which includes swimming the English Channel, 
swimming from Catalina Island to Los Angeles and swimming around Manhattan Island. And I've been a support crew for her when she swam a couple of years ago from Nanaimo to Kitts Beach over, I think, it was more than a day, something like 35 hours. And it was, it was beyond comprehension to watch. Mm. The amount of endurance, the amount of, I mean, planning, but also uh, it's, it's a forbearance that I can't imagine. Uh, and you know, did, you, yeah, go ahead. Does Jesse wear a wetsuit? She never wears a wetsuit. <laughs> She's what they call a skin swimmer. She, you know, swims in a bathing suit, and it's English Channel swimming rules. So it's a bathing suit, a swim cap, and goggles, and that's it. Wow. And you can kind of grease up with a kind of a sunblock, you know, uh, lotion or whatever that also maybe keeps it a little bit warmer than being totally without anything. But, um, so she's, she's off the chart. Like, she, her, her swim from kids was nominated Federation as one of the five top swimmers of the world, along with somebody who did the English Channel four times in a row. Hmm. Uh, probably uh, beyond the goals of anybody who might just be thinking uh, that this is something they would want to try. Um, I know, again, with the pandemic, yeah. uh, things have been cancelled and put on hold, but what advice would you give then to somebody who's thinking about this and would like to try it? Uh, Valza, my organization, um, a couple of years talk back in the fall about cold water swimming because we noticed that there was a lot of interest. And so if you just uh, go on YouTube and um, search for Valza, you should be able to find it very easily. It's the only video that we put up there. Um, and that's just a few different people talking about, you know, one is Mary Susan Simmons, talking about her experience, um, somebody who's familiar with cold water exposure, and a geologist talking about the local waters. That's a good sort of just a start. And I, I applied some of those things when I was getting into cold water myself. Um, should be comfortable swimming in the open water. And so if cold water isn't for you just yet, the summer is coming. Find a few events, certainly get in touch with us. Anyway, if you just have any questions, um, you want to have good gear. I recommend necessarily going to the ocean without a wetsuit for the first time. And so uh, wetsuits are not necessarily expensive, but of course they come in all kinds of, um, you know, degrees of quality. Um, and if you're going to do that and you are somewhere in the pool, you know, you should be able to go about, you know, a good, I don't know, kilometer in the pool without stopping, um, to be kind of comfortable out in the water. I mean, you can get out of the water anytime, especially if you're just going along the shore, but you know, they all, it's a couple steps to get to jumping into the cold water without a wetsuit. <laughs> on a cloudy day in Vancouver. All right. Well, Craig, thanks so much for joining us to talk about this today. Uh, Appreciate your time. Uh, We'll talk to you again, I'm sure, but thank you. You're welcome.